This morning's text is from Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Also, join me in prayer. I want uh, for just this scripture, this passage, as we kind of conclude the Psalms of Ascent, uh, to be covered over in prayer. Bow with me. Father God, we pray that you would empower your word this morning with and by your spirit. Uh, you have spoken to us because you are good, you are kind. Uh, Lord, we want to hear you. We want to understand with clarity, and of course, your spirit uh, gives us that. Lord God, I pray that we would be shaped and formed by it, and Lord, that uh, we wouldn't just have actions of obedience flow out of it, uh, but that those actions and obedience would be uh, accompanied by your great grace and by fond affections and love uh, for you. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be the source of all of our hope and all of our action, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we do complete our uh, sermon series in the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, so this may be your first day with us. You may not even know what we're talking about. But the last 16 weeks, we've spent in the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are 14 uh, uh, different psalms from Psalm 120 until uh, Psalm 134 uh, as we're wrapping up this uh, week. And what you will have noticed if you've been with us the last few weeks is that these psalms end on a high note. They end on a crescendo, if you will. Several weeks ago, we covered the jubilant joy. Last week, it was how it is good and pleasing, it's pleasant whenever brothers and sisters dwell in unity with Christ and with one another. But this week, we're actually talking about big blessings. So as you can tell, the last three of these psalms are something that are energizing, they're invigorating, they are wonderful, they are comforting. But in order to appreciate the crescendo, we've got to, in some sense, look back at where we started. We've got to uh, appreciate the crescendo by looking back at the minor notes of Psalm 120, if you will. That's where this journey began. That's where this uh, worshiper begins as he ascends up the mountain of worship. And if you'll recall, or if you want to turn there, you can actually read Psalm 120, and you can see that the worshiper is in distress. He actually exclaims, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He doesn't just say that he's distressed. He says that he's pleading for deliverance from that distress. And what has brought him distress is the deceivers that he lives amidst. What he is saying essentially in Psalm 120 is that he's beginning this ascent into worship in a very desperate place, in a place of death and despair and deceit. What we have to understand at some level is that he was far away from worship. In fact, in uh, Psalm 120, it says this. It says, woe to me. That's a very strong way of speaking. Woe to me. Too long have I made my dwelling among those who hate peace. When I speak for peace, they are for what? They're for war. So I want to ask you a question, if we can, just revisiting Psalm 120 real quick. I, I wonder what it is that is keeping you from worship. What is leaving you far from worship the way that these psalms uh, started? Maybe it is deception. Maybe the deception of Psalm 120 is something that you find every single time that you turn on your phone. 
and you go onto social media and you see the lies that are here in our culture, in our society, whispering, shouting, sometimes even lies at you. And it's really discouraging. It leaves you amidst a lot of distress. As Andrew mentioned already, and as surely is, uh, is on your mind this week and the weeks prior with, uh, with uh, the, the shooting near Buffalo, with the shooting right here in Texas, uh, with the murder of children, with uh, the rise in violence in especially inner cities, you might have something like hate and violence on your mind, and it's actually pulling at you. It's pulling you away from worship. I wonder if it's not deception or if it's like hatred or violence, but rather it's uh, the things on the geopolitical stage. It's uh, wars, it's rumors of wars, it's these kinds of things that lead to like a low-level anxiety or maybe not so low-level for some of us that is just tugging at us. It's, it's whispering to us to distract us away from a place of worship. And I wonder if you're spending more of your time over the last few weeks and months and maybe even years, some of us, decades, in Psalm 120, in the place of Psalm 120, in that distraction, in that deception, in that death, if you will. You can learn, we can learn a lot from this pilgrim's progress, a lot from our sojourner's story, a lot from our worshiper's walk this morning. He started in a place of despair, but here now we see in Psalm 134 that he ends up in a place of big blessings. So what is it that we can learn from this walk into worship, this ascent up the mountain of worship? What can we learn from this psalmist. Well, the first thing that we've got to learn, and this kind of leads us into our primary point, is is that we have to leave. We've got to, in some sense, leave the spiritual squalor of this world behind and chart a course of divine destination into worship. That's what we've got to do. That's what you have to do. In some uh, very real sense, you have a choice in front of you, not just this morning, but every day. Are you going to live in the world or are you going to ascend the mountain of worship? And what we're going to find here in Psalm 134 is that holy hands lifted to the Lord receive big blessings. Holy hands lifted to the Lord receive from him big blessings. In fact, we're going to find in just a moment, we receive the biggest blessings. And there's a bit of a a road that we're going to take here this morning. We're going to first learn about the imperative invitation, the imperative invitation. And that's going to take us into a place where we examine the praise of priests so first, the imperative invitation, then the, uh, then the praise of priests, and then finally, the biggest blessing. And what we're going to do is quickly unpack the psalm in kind of that order, and then we're going to turn around and walk back through it to discover where the gospel is in the midst of this psalm. But first, the imperative invitation. Look there with me at Psalm 136, and you will, uh, sorry, 134, and you will see the very first words are, come, bless the Lord. This is an imperative invitation, come and bless the Lord. We are met here with an unsubtle, uh, unsubtle beckoning into worship. That's what the first words are, is come and bless the Lord. It's this imperative, it's this extravagant invitation into worship. Much ink over in the last few years has been spilled about worship in everyday life. 
In fact, this is probably something that you've heard a lot of preaching on or even read about. You've seen people talking about how worship is an everyday activity, and of course it is. Worship is something that we are always called to do. Worship is something that we must be engaged in. It must be something that meets us, yes, on Monday morning application. Worship has to be something that is impacting us throughout our week. But what this verse is saying is that whether it's on Monday morning or all of life or very individual, this verse calls people to come. Don't stay where you're at. You may be worshiping in your car. You may be singing loudly to music. You might be serving in a really wonderful organization that's governed by and and shaped by the gospel. That's wonderful. Worship every day. But here we see the psalmist beckon us to come, beckon us to actually do something. Don't stay where you're at. Move, gather with us. The pilgrim is not supposed to stay where he is or continue in the isolation of his distress. Why? Because that's disobedience. There has to be a movement towards worship, not just any kind of worship. It actually tells us, bless the Lord, all you servants. So there is this congregation that's happening. You're not merely to come and to receive, but you're to actively bless. I wonder how many of us think about that when we gather for worship here on a Sunday morning, that you're not just coming to receive. What is happening right now is not a one-way street. It might have the appearance of that because I am sitting here talking, but what we are doing is we are listening to God in his word, and then we are responding. There is this wonderful conversation that is happening, that does happen when saints worship. And what this psalmist is asking is that we come, that you come and that you bless the Lord, who all you servants of the Lord. You're not merely to come and to receive, but you are to bless. You have a role in the administration of glory giving. There is no idleness in what we are doing here. You are to come and to tend to business. So for those of you who thought that you came this morning to passively kind of be here, to be inert, to be inactive, no, that's not true. You're here to bless, to worship. You're here to listen and to respond, to take communion, to sing the words of Scripture, to receive God's Word and then activate on it, be changed by it, be informed by it. There is nothing passive about what we are after here this morning. But there is a little bit of a problem here. And it's something that we have to deal rightly with because if we read this psalm in its context, we have to ask the question of who is all of these servants? Who are they? Who is it that is to come and bless? And what we find here is actually a surprising answer. It's not all about us. What we find here is is that it is priests. So what I want to examine just for a moment with you is the praise of priests. What it says here is, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. First, I want to acknowledge that that's the third time out of five that he's going to use the name of the Lord here. So this psalm is more, much more about the Lord than it is about us. So where we draw application, it is always kind of underneath the wonder and awe of the Lord. So we're offering blessings, but we're learning a lot about the Lord here this morning. But it says, you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Who stands in the house of the Lord by night? At this time, in this context, with this psalm, who is it talking about? It's talking about priests. 
Your average uh, Israelite would not have been standing in the middle of the temple late at night. He wouldn't have been standing there. It would have been something that was for the administration of the priests. The priests would have been there. They would have been charged to be there in the house of the Lord, in the temple. They would have been the ones that this psalm was written most acutely about. And what it does is it tells them to do something. The priests are there, and the psalm is for the priests, yes, and it tells them to do something. Verse 2, it says, lift up your holy hands, sorry, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. So what we get, kind of piggybacking on last week when Andrew talked about these consecrated priests that had oil put on them. They were actually set apart. They were part of a specific tribe, the Levites. They would have been priests that were specifically ordained, that were specifically charged to be there in the temple, making sacrifices, leading psalm, making sure to protect the temple, making sure to do the things that God had commanded to happen there. They would have had a specific role. The priests are there to do this. The priests are there to lift their holy hands up towards the holy place. But what is their motivation? Well, their motivation is uh, is myriad. There's lots of motivations for priests to be there in the temple at night doing these things that are being commanded of them. But what we've got to say is that the first one is to obey God's calling to come. The Holy Spirit indwelled this psalmist and says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, lifting hands to the Lord. So they were to go there simply out of obedience. A lot of times we try to really extract that away. We think in our modern sensibilities that worship is not real worship unless it is uh, extraneous, whether it is uh, just extemporary, whether it's something that is excitable in the moment, that it's not true and genuine worship if it is specifically motivated out of obedience, but that is not true. That is not true. These priests would have been motivated by obedience. It is actually worship to hear God's call to worship and to simply respond in faith, to simply be obedient. Let us not, in kind of our modern sensibilities that I mentioned, eschew obedience. Where God calls us to obedience, let us be obedient, joyfully obedient, even sometimes when we don't feel like it. But these priests would have been motivated by obedience. But they also would have been motivated by drawing near to God. The commandment is come. It's come. It's draw near to the holy. It's lift up your hands to the holy. It's facing the holy. So it's not merely obedience. It is also to draw near to God. And then there is another piece of this. They're not doing it as individuals. For a lot of us, we came here this morning thinking about what worship would be like for us as individuals. Maybe that we'd be considering what it's like for us as a family, for our kids in Kid City or for our spouse. We would have been maybe thinking a little bit about what worship was going to be like for us. But very few of us come regularly on Sunday mornings thinking, I can't wait to gather together with a room full of other spirit-filled, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing believers. We don't think of it in communal kinds of terms like that, but that is certainly what they would have been doing because it's not merely obedience. It is not merely drawing near to God. It is to exalt the name of the Lord together. That's the motivation of these priests. 
Worship is not, therefore, primarily personal or self-interested the way that we so often think of it as. That's one of the reasons, if you've ever wondered why we keep things pretty simple around here at City Church, is because we don't want to distract you. We don't want to manipulate your emotions. We could turn the volume way, way up. We could build out some big band. We could maybe get a, a whole bunch of lights and fog machines. And I'm not saying that any of that stuff is evil or egregious. But if you're motivated into worship by a machine, by a light, by the level of volume, something is disjointed in that. We want to be called together into worship. We want to hear God's beckoning call and enter into worship. And we don't want to try to manipulate you into that. We want to be obedient. We want to do it together. That's what we want to do. This is what the priests originally did. It's not primarily personal or self-interested, but it is communal and it is focused on the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. So we get the imperative invitation. We get the, uh, something about what the praise of priests was supposed to look like. Now what we want to do is talk about the big blessings. Verse 3, read with me there. Don't trust me with it. Look at it. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So, so we see that there is a blessing on blessing happening here. If you're, uh, if you're charting this out, if you were to write this set of verses out, you would notice that it begins and ends with blessing. Come, bless the Lord. Now there is this next phrase that says, bless May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So this is, this is a little tedious, but I want you to follow this pivot here just for one moment. While the priests have not come to receive the blessing, but to give it, they receive blessing all the same. Even though they came together to bless the name of the Lord, now it is they who are actually receiving the blessing. There is blessing for blessing. There is blessing on blessing. There is a multiplication of blessing. There are big blessings here. And it's very interesting because this blessing seems, if you're paying very close attention, to come out of nowhere. Do you see that the first two verses are set apart and this one is standing on its own? There's a reason why that is. Do you see that there is a, a, a come, bless the Lord, and then this one is actually coming from somewhere else. It's actually written somewhat in third person. It's almost as if the blessing is coming from stage right. So the people that are there that are giving blessing are now receiving blessing. And this blessing comes in third person. It's almost that as if you were to enact this out, what would happen is, is that the psalmist is calling God's priests to gather together and to bless the name of the Lord. And then, out of, uh, out, not out of right field, but out of some higher place, there is another priest that is pronouncing blessing on those priests. It's almost as if there is a high priest here. One with bigger blessings. One not just raising holy hands to uh, lift blessings to the Lord, but one who actually is anointed to give the blessings of God to those holy priests. I wonder if you get some of where I'm going here, or if you just hear the gospel in the midst of this. Right worship begins with the sole purpose of blessing the Lord, but it results in blessing for the worshiper. If you have priests here in the temple blessing the Lord, 
it almost seems as if there is a higher blessing that is then pronounced. To pronounce the blessing of the Lord on these priests means that there must be a higher priest with a higher blessing. And here's where I would like to show you that this is Jesus. Let's venture to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. You can actually go there with me. And what you'll find in Hebrews chapter 12 is this. You have come to Mount Zion. More to come there, but do you hear the same words being used here? You have come to where? Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the holy Jerusalem. Innumerable angels and festal gatherings, assembly of the firstborn of those who are enrolled in heaven to God, to Jesus, the mediator. Who is it that is on Mount Zion? Well, it's us. We've come to Mount Zion. Who else is there when we get there to Mount Zion? Who is it that is seated there? Who is it that has assembled the angels for a festal gathering? Who is it that has assembled the rites of the firstborn, you and me? It's Jesus, the mediator. What an amazing thing that we get to see that Jesus is the one that gives the biggest blessing. What gives him the right? What gives Jesus the right to stand on Mount Zion and pronounce blessing on you? What is it that gives him the right to do that? And of course, it is the essence of the gospel. Jesus, who had in all rights to be God, to to be there in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, did not count equality with God to be anything, to be grasped, to be held on to, but rather he emptied himself so that he might come here to earth in human form, as fully man, as fully God, to live a perfect, complete life, to be the actual holy high priest when we never could be. He was the one that lived this perfect life, and then there, uh, because of Pontius Pilate and his injustice, and because of the people of God uh, saying that he was a heretic, is then placed on a cross after being unjustly accused, And he's the one who lifts his hands. Not us, not the priests. He's the one that lifts his hands on the cross, dies. He dies for the sins of those whom he would gather there on Mount Zion. But he doesn't stay dead, right? We know the story of the gospel, but I want you to hear it anew for the first time. He did not just die there to justify, to sanctify, to bless these priests, these holy priests. More on that in just a second. He did not just die there. He also raises from the grave, and then he ascends. Where does he ascend? To the heavenly places. Why? To sit at the right hand of God, to advocate for us, to advocate for us. He is the one that sits there pronouncing blessing on God's people, and he has every right to do so because he is risen. He is risen indeed. We must know that Jesus has the right to bless his holy priest because he is not dead. He is on high. And he pronounces blessing on his priests. Jesus is the high priest who blesses from Zion. We, we have to know that he is the one that is seated in Zion. And that he is the third person. He is the mediator. He is the one who assembles the group of the firstborn. And then you must see this. I want you to look. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. 
The very beginning of, uh, verse, uh, of Hebrews 12 is that you have come to Mount Zion. He has actually purchased the ability for you to come and to be on Mount Zion with him and to receive his blessing. And this is revolutionary. Why? Because what it is teaching us, if, if, if you've gotten lost in some of the you know, back and forth there, I want you to get this. I want you to remember where we are in this Psalms of Ascent. I want you to remember that we started in the depths of despair and we cried out to God that he would deliver us from them. And now he is saying that you are blessed. He is the one that is actually telling us that we are the priests, that we are the royal priesthood. More on that just in one second. Jesus has come. He's pronounced this blessing on Mount Zion, and you are the one who is the pilgrim. You are the worshiper from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134. And, and what you may say is, I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm still in uh, Psalm 120. I feel like I'm still in that valley. I'm still in the depths. I'm still dead in some sense. There is something that is not fully redeemed in me. And what I want to beckon you into is worship. I want to beckon you into the blessing that Jesus has for you, that he pronounces on you. But what you've got to get is that you are the pilgrim priest. So what I want to do is walk back from this. We've already talked about how the big blessings uh, come to these, uh, these priests there in Psalm 134. But we're also talking about how he brings it to us in Hebrews chapter 12. I also want for you to know for a fact that it is you. I want you to put yourself in the place of the sojourning worshiper this morning coming up to the temple. I want you to imagine that you're the one that has ascended these steps of worship and now you've found yourself in the temple and you are reciting. You're one of the millions of Jews, one of the millions of Israelites who's gone all the way up into the temple and is now reciting Psalm 134. And what you're doing in actuality, is pronouncing blessing on these priests. You're singing about the priests. You're reciting poetry about the priests. How would that make you feel? No, it may, hopefully it's made you feel worshipful. You're there in the temple, and now you're able to bless these priests that are there. But you've got to imagine that somebody over the millions thought to themselves, wow, I've gotten all the way up here into this place of worship, and now, now I'm going to read this psalm that's about the priest. There has to be some feeling of being left out. For the Jew that was there, there has to be some sense that they've been left out of this, that now they are there to actually proclaim a blessing that is specifically falling on the priests. It's had to have occurred to at least some of them that on the surface, this psalm isn't for them, and it creates longing in them. Now, I'm not saying that it's not for them. I do think that it's for them. But I'm just saying that on the surface, you have to imagine that there was some sense of disappointment for those who are really paying attention. And this is where an Old Testament longing is answered in a New Testament promise, covenant, assurance. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says this, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What I want you to hear this morning, Christian, is that you are the royal priest. 
You are the royal priestess. You are the one standing there in the temple. You are the one that is now receiving that blessing because of Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Yes, you, Christian, are a royal priest standing eternally, not just by night, standing eternally in the house of God, blessing the Lord and being blessed by the Lord. What great news that is for those of us who feel like we are caught in Psalm 120. You're a priest, and you're living eternally in the temple of God. You're a people. You're part of a people. You're part of a holy nation. That's the news that you need to hear this morning out of this psalm and out of the uh, new covenant promises to us. We must know it, but there is a purpose for it. First Peter 2.9 continues on to say this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so there's some action here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like the culmination and completion of Psalm 134? You're the priest, and the reason why you're a priest in God's house, in God's forever people, the reason why you have been redeemed is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of eternal darkness and into his marvelous lights. What good news there is for us in this. So what I want to do is to revisit this idea of the praise of priests and apply it to you. I want you to understand something of this this morning. Verse 2 says that you lift your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. So I want to ask you something this morning, worshiper. Do you lift your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord? Did you come into this place this morning expecting to lift your hands in praise and worship of the eternal king forever as a secure and holy priest and do that forever? Is that what your worship looks like? Is that the substance? Is it the essence of your worship? And for most of us, if we're being honest, we've got to say, probably not, not really. I'm, I'm, I'm languid, I'm listless, I'm, I'm, I'm left out in this worship. I want more. I want more worship. I don't want to remain in Psalm 120. I want to be here in Psalm 134. And what I want you to know is that Jesus has already done it for you. If you hear this language about ascending the mountain of worship and you just go, I'm tired. I cannot do it. I cannot walk this road up this mountain. I cannot ascend these 14 steps into the temple. I cannot take my place amongst God's people because I don't feel like I'm part of it. What you need to hear this morning is that Jesus has already done that for you. He's already lifted you up. He's already taken you out of that place of desperation and put you in the temple There's nothing that you need to do to earn the right to be there as a priest or priestess this morning. Jesus has already finished that work. So so what is it that we're supposed to do? What is it in the light of all of this that we must do? We must understand that Jesus is our high priest who blesses us and that he has the power to do it. Yes, because he conquered death 
in his resurrection, but we also see something very specific in the psalm. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel and the beginning of his letters that we're about to venture into over the next few weeks in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that's where we're going next. If you're wanting to uh, read ahead, that's where we're going. Please join with us. Uh, Read that stuff. I mean, study the scriptures with us. Go before us in that. But John tells us in no uncertain terms that the word was with God, the word was God, and through him all things were created, and not anything was made that wasn't made through him. He's the one who has the power of creation, and he's the one who has the power of recreation, and he's placed you in the temple to worship him. So, continuing to walk back into that imperative invitation, priests of City Church, I want you to hear verse 1 again with new ears, understanding this passage more fully, understanding it in light of the new covenant. I want for you to understand verse 1. I want you to hear and receive verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Many of us choose to stay in the distressing and deceptive and destructive dwelling of death, but what are you to do? How do you, how do you heed this call to come and bless the Lord, all you servants? I've got four very quick points. The first one is, is that you must see worship as the divine destination. I'm going to say that again. You must see worship as the divine destination. Okay, if you're not going to remain here in Psalm 120, you've got to see that worship is actually where you need to be headed. For those of you who have decided to just stay in the muck and mire of sin, who have uh, decided to concern yourself with every tweet, with every declaration of war, with everything that's happening in this world, and you're like, I just want out, but every piece of your action is saying, I want to stay in it. What you've got to understand is that you are to understand that Uh, the destination, the divine destination for you is worship. And of course, the catechism agrees with this. What is the chief end of man? It's to worship God. It's to glorify God. It's to enjoy him forever. That's that's your primary purpose. It's not the culture war. It's not policy. It's not gun policy. It's not uh, perpetual anxiety about these things. It's hearing the beck and call of Psalm 120. Get up. Go out, and it's hearing the beck and call and the movement through the rest of these psalms of ascent to gear up, to gear up for glory giving to God. Your purpose in this life is worship and enjoyment of the Father. That's the first thing that you've got to do is realize that you were made to worship, not for any other thing. Most of us treat our occupations as our primary thing that we're supposed to be doing. Most of us treat our spouses like they're the primary relationship that we're supposed to have. Or maybe our children are our primary effort. They're the primary thing that we've got to do. Most of us, if you look back through the search history on Amazon's app or on Safari or whatever browser of choice you've got, if we were to assess what is your chief end, we would come up with anything other than worship. What you've got to know, what you've got to recognize your divine destination as is worship. It's your chief end. It's the thing that you must do. Second, you have to understand that worship is a discipline. 14 psalms over 14 weeks, 16, not counting Easter and the week before, 
This is something that we've been patiently plotting towards, something that I've noticed our worship just increase through the Psalms. And I am not, I am, I am, I am just not surprised, okay, that we go to the Psalms that are about worship and that I can hear in this room, I can hear in my conversations with you that there is a stirring of worship. There's a desire for worship, but we've got to understand that it is a discipline. Worship is less immediately gratifying than mind-numbing entertainment or personal passions for pleasure. It just is. Worship is a long road. It's a discipline. I wonder how many of you have disciplined your mind, disciplined your family to think of Sundays, this gathering even, as a place for your utmost and your highest. Worship is a discipline. I want to challenge especially you men to think of what we're doing here as something significant, something that is worth your life, something that you must come to, that you desire to gather with the other priests of God and come and actually engage in, enlivened in joy in your heart. I wonder if there is a space for as much discipline with this as there is for reading whatever articles you consume throughout the week, whatever YouTube videos you're taking in, this has to be something that you're disciplined to see. And li listen, I will tell you, it is not easy, okay? It has taken years for me to think of Sunday as something as significant as I think that it is, okay? But we've got to be disciplined to think of it in these terms. You've got to be disciplined to lead your family towards it. Third, we've got to understand that this ascension to Zion this gathering, this rise to worship is actually taking you out of the world. What we are doing here this morning, though it seems very, uh, maybe even subpar to you, maybe you're coming from a totally different context and you're like, this, this is what it's all about, this worship, this kind of meager, like, you know, minor, like tiny worship, this small group, this is what it's all about. And I just want to say, yes, it is. Why? Because it is unworldly. It is otherworldly. It is celestial. It is big. What we are doing here is so significant. I wish sometimes that I could just take spiritual specs and put them on the people of City Church so that you could see the unreal power that is here in this room. By the power of the Spirit, in His Word, dwelt in each one of us, coming together, exponentially elevating and exalting the name of Jesus. I wish that you could see it. It feels very ordinary, but I promise you that the princes and principalities, the evil of this age, they hate this and they know and understand the kind of power that is here in this room. I wish that we could see it. I wish that it was right in front of us. When priests come together to bless the Lord, to lift their hands, they leave the woeful world behind for an audience with the Almighty. I mean, you want to, I, I think that that might just be the thing that I hope like captures your heart this morning. You are not in the world this morning. You're in a heavenly place. I mean, really. I wonder if you could be disciplined to think about it in that way. I've said this before, but years ago, we used to gather in a different place. And every morning I would, uh, I would drive in early with actually out my family because we were in those early years of, you know, kids and getting them everywhere. And I would drive over this overpass that at certain times of the year, I was literally just aimed into the sun. I had to take it by faith that I was going to make it to the bottom of the ramp. But what I thought, what I tried to discipline myself to think of is I'm driving sunward. 
Like not S-U-N word, S-O-N word. I'm driving towards something that is very significant. And I just want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to take that up, to put it in your mind, for you to understand that what we are doing here this morning is leaving the world. I mean, if you've been disgusted over the last few weeks about what's happening in our world, no one understand that by coming to this place, the world is not here. Man, I hope that that cultivates something in your heart that desires to worship in this way. It is not as much an escape from the world as it is a kingdom conquering of it, and I just ask you to believe that. Finally, when we as priests gather to bless the Lord, we do a few things according to Psalm 134, and I'm just going to list them. We stand in his house. We enter his presence. I believe wholeheartedly that he is here. I believe wholeheartedly in the promise that we're two or more gather in the name of Jesus, that he is here amongst us, that he is promising us that he will not leave us to the end of the age, that he's never going to leave or forsake you. He's here. His power is here. His presence is here. And we stand in the midst of his house. The second thing is, is that we lift up our hands in holiness. Jesus has justified us. He has purchased perfection for us, and we lift our hands, and they are holy, okay? Now, you may feel very uncomfortable. You may have come in and, uh, been coming to church for years and years and years, and you've never raised your hands. I don't want to pressure you to do it. What I am going to tell you is, is that there is something interactive about just simply raising your hands. If it doesn't feel comfortable to you, don't worry about it. There are plenty of ways to express worship found in Scripture, and here at City Church, I want us to do all of them. If we can do it in an orderly way, I mean, don't bring a tambourine or a harp or clashing cymbals in here. Maybe ask first. But I do want to tell you that there are lots of ways that we can worship. And I want to see City Church really take that up, to hold it tight and to know that here at City Church we want to worship. You can lift up your holy hands and worship and bless the name of God. The last thing that we do is we receive blessing. It's passive. Jesus right out there from Mount Zion is just pronouncing blessing on you. If you want blessing, come here. I want for City Church to be the type of place that when people ask you about it, they go, man, I love City Church. Why do you love City Church? Because I just feel blessed when I go there, when I'm a part of it, when I'm worshiping. I just feel the blessings of God. I think that that's what Psalm 134 tells us is here for us. Holy hands, lifted to the Lord, received the biggest blessing in Jesus Christ. Jesus conveys his consecrated blessing to us. So I just want to read these last words over you. These are not my words. I want you to receive them as Jesus' words for you. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. God and Father, we want to be worshipers like this. We do not want to uh, remain stale or lukewarm in our worship of you. You command the stars and they do whatever you want. Lord, but sometimes our cold hearts do not come here ready for worship. Lord, let us feel like the priests that we are. Let us agree with this psalm that we are to come and to bless you, all of us, that we are to stand by day and night for all of eternity in your house and to lift up our hands to the holy place and to bless you. And Lord, may we receive the blessings of Jesus. Lord, we pray your blessing on us this morning. Lord, we love you. We give you great thanks for all of these things in the name and for the fame of Jesus Christ. Amen.